everybody. I'm Signa. And I'm Conley. And we want to welcome you again to our Yellow Sofa Conversation. Today we want to talk to you in this vein of modern miracles. We want to tell you the story of a young Lazarus. We've so often told people that we thought we'd probably experience firsthand every biblical miracle that we'd read about except the parting of the Red Sea. And a lot of people will say, well, I bet you haven't seen anybody raised from the dead. Well, actually, that's what we're going to talk to you about today, because it is one of the most remarkable God stories ever. And when we talk about things being life-changing, I mean, this was life-changing for sure. So we'll just jump right in with telling you that we had some friends who had five sons, And they wanted to have a special birthday party for their oldest son, who was turning 16. And they asked if they could have it at our house, at our little cottage on the bay in Mobile, Alabama. And we said, sure, this young man was our godson. And we just thought it'd be real special. At at our cottage on the bay, we had a pool, which was one of the reasons that they wanted to bring their sons and the oldest son's four or five friends over to celebrate his birthday. So you can just imagine that we had probably, I don't know, five, six, as Colley said, 16-year-old boys roughhousing in the water. We'd had a, a really nice celebration out on our back porch, sort of in a medieval theme. His parents presented him with a large medieval sword and had him kneel, and they prayed over him, and everybody prayed over him, and they put the sword on his shoulders, and it was sort of a coming-of-age party, and it had a lot of spiritual significance. It was just a really great day. Everybody had a lot of fun. Well, as I said, this birthday boy had four younger brothers, and one of them was, I think, three months old. I mean, he was a babe in arms. And then the second one up from the youngest was three years old. And then there were a couple in between. I think the next one was probably nine and then 12 to get to the oldest who was turning 16. So you can tell we had a lot of people. All the adults who were there were on the back porch watching. We were supervising the kids. And anyway, everybody was having fun swimming. And all of a sudden... There was this scream, this yell from one of the boys, and then they all started yelling. And the parents ran down to the pool, and one of the birthday boy's friends had found the three-year-old on the bottom of the pool, and they had no idea how long he'd been there. He was totally limp, and his lips were beginning already beginning to turn purple, uh, he was totally lifeless. Well, your heart just stops. When, I mean, this is a nightmare. It was one of the worst things we'd ever experienced. Have you ever been in a situation where something just horrible happens, and like somebody's in a restaurant and they get choked or something, and everybody just freezes? You know, it was sort of like that. And why we do that, I don't know, unless we're just so stunned. But they did get him up out of the water. And Conley, 
I don't know, I watched you and you you got sort of a superhuman strength and energy and just started doing something. Well, it was our pool in our house and I felt responsible. I quickly asked the parents of the birthday boy, as well as the father of one of the other youngsters who was a guest, if they'd had any CPR training. If they had, nobody would admit it. And I had not, but you pick up a little stuff along the way. And here was this three-year-old who I knew well, and I just, something intuitively I did was lay him on the on his side on a towel on the apron around the pool, and I put my index finger down his throat to be sure his air passageway was not blocked by anything. And I'd heard people say that you need to be careful that a drowning victim doesn't swallow their tongue. I've also heard people say you can't swallow your tongue. This little boy had swallowed his tongue, and I I pulled it up and began to compress my hands on his chest and on his back. An unbelievable amount of water and remnants of the meal he had just finished came out. I I couldn't believe that he had that much inside that little fellow. Well, while this was going on, and I'm sure time stood still for you while you were doing this, right? Right. You kind of lost track of time, but— I immediately called 911, as I think someone else did. The little kid's parents were hysterical, as you can imagine. I would have been, too. One of the 16-year-old friends who was there was the son of our church administrator. And he called his dad at work, and he got on the phone to call the prayer chain at our church. And this was the most amazing little organization where everybody had two people you call if you got a call for an emergency. And then those people called two people and on and on and on it went. We found out later that within really seconds, there were so many people at our church praying for a miracle for this little Ian, this three-year-old little boy, Ian. And we just knew we were praying. We were desperate. We were praying out loud. We were calling on the name of Jesus. Well, I took the screaming three-month-old out of his mama's arms and said, here, I'll hold the baby. And sure, she's just beside herself with her little one unconscious beside the pool. And I I just said, I'm going to take him and I'm going to go out to the street to flag down the ambulance when it comes. We had a long driveway from our house to the street, and I wanted to make sure they saw me and they turned in the right driveway because it was a little bit difficult to find. That took a while, and all this time there is nothing, nothing, no sound or anything. I could hear the ambulance coming in the background. And with one hand, I'm holding the baby, and the other hand, I'm waving my arms in the middle of the road and motion them to come in up the driveway and running behind the ambulance. And there are two attendants, and they say, so where is the child? And I said, he's in the back of the house. And they said, how long has has it been since you found him in the pool? And I said, well, it's been at least 15 minutes because it took a while to call, to get the baby, to get up to the street, to wait for y'all to get here. It's been a while. And I remember 
One of the ambulance attendants just shook his head, but they hurried. They were very efficient, and they got their equipment together and ran around the side of our house to the back where the pool was on the water side of the house. When they got there, can you remember them coming? Well, what I remember was I have prayed with people that were seriously ill before, and, you know, you have a desperate prayer because you know unless God intervenes something they're not going to make it. And this time, it wasn't a desperate prayer. It was me praying desperately. And the whole time, I knew that I had a standard policy that anytime some kids were over there that I was unfamiliar with, I would give them a swimming lesson before I'd let them play around the pool without a life jacket. And of course, since the three-year-old was there with his parents, I wrongly assumed they would watch him. And he wasn't supposed to be in the pool, but he had fallen into the pool trying to chase the ball that the older boys were playing. You get some young teenage boys in the pool, and they're in the water, out of the water, throwing things. Their constant motion, they were keeping the pool stirred up and nonstop, which is the reason that, or excuse at least, that we used for not seeing Ian fall in. But it was one of those kind of desperate things that I did everything I knew to do, which the thing I was most aware of was praying, and there was absolutely no response. And by that time, the muscles in his body were beginning to contract. And at first I thought, oh, you know, he's coming around, and then I realized he wasn't breathing. That is what your body does when it's robbed of oxygen. So that this was just desperation. It was an involuntary reaction it, absolutely. on his part. But I, I still had my finger down his throat because I didn't know what else to do. And, and you th- were compressing his chest. Exactly. You were breathing in. Right. You, you were, As Conley told me later, he said, you know, all I can remember is I've seen him do this on TV. I've never had lessons, but I've, I've watched people do this. And he, as best he could remember, it was, it was what he had seen. I don't know how long I had kept that up. It seemed like forever. And more than once, I thought, I'm getting no response. I'm not going to do anything. And I ever had God just really push me to do something. It was that he he's encouraged me to keep doing the compressions. And as I heard the EMT arrive at the end of our long driveway, I felt his jaw move slightly. And by that time, I had imagined all kinds of signs of life because I was so desperate And I thought, his jaw muscle is compressing just like his other muscles have done. And then I thought I could hear just a whisper of breath come up. Once again, I had tried to imagine that he was coming around so many times, I was not even believing that's what it was. And then I felt him breathe. And the next thing was, he let out a scream that I couldn't believe a three-year-old could expel. I couldn't either. Just as we entered the gate into our backyard, and they're carrying their equipment in. This blood-curdling scream came out of this little baby, and everybody started yelling at the same time, and Conley got up. I remember his his knees were just bloody from kneeling so long on that concrete apron around the pool. It had been that long. And the EMTs took over, and I don't know what all they did, but we were just still hysterical, hoping he was going to be okay. Well, they checked him out. They did all the things they do to make sure. Yeah, they had the oxygen bottle and a mask, and they put that on him to be sure that he would get plenty of oxygen. 
and they did decide to go ahead and take him in the ambulance to the hospital to get him checked out real well. And they said he'd see some doctors in the ER, and they would most likely keep him in the hospital for a while to make sure everything was functioning well. Now, we had a young boy in our church who had had something similar happen several years even before we got there. And his father had found him in the pool and resuscitated him, but he had been in, in the water long enough and without oxygen that his, he had irreversible brain damage. And he, he couldn't speak. He couldn't move. They came to the church most Sundays. Everybody in the church knew him. And that was the thing that kept coming to me is, you know, what is going to happen to Ian? We're going to have another one of these situations. Well, it, it was one of the most terrifying experiences any of us had ever had. And after everyone left and a bunch of people went up to the hospital to be with him, Conley and I sort of cleaned up some things. And maybe an hour later, we drove up to the hospital, too, and went in the room where they had admitted Ian. And when we walked in, oh, my word, what a sight. Here in this hospital bed was three-year-old Ian sitting up in bed, grinning ear to ear with his four brothers sitting around him. He was like king for a day. He was getting all the attention, and he was just eating it up. And, of course, we just burst into tears. We knew we had witnessed a miracle of resurrection. There is no way that child could have lived. And when we were packing up and leaving and before the EMTs had left our house, one of the men looked at me and he said, ma'am, you saw a miracle today. He said, your husband saved that that kid's life. He said, we normally get to these situations, and by the time this much time has lapsed, we're not doing a resuscitation. We're doing a recovery of, of, of the body. And he said, I just can't even believe he's all right. He said, you've just had a miracle here today. I let, I let him know quickly that I hadn't done it. <laughs> it was the power of prayer that had done it. That Jesus is the one who had done that. He didn't argue with me because he was as surprised as we were at all that happened. And this, Ian first came back. The, the one thing that he did when he, he cried for his mama and said, I can't see anything. I can't see. And we found out later that when your the, the capillaries in your eyeballs are denied oxygen, they typically will rupture and you won't be able to see now, by the time he got to the hospital, that had gone, had passed up. And this little three-year-old who'd been idolizing older brothers and friends since he could remember had these teenage boys and his older brothers gathered around him, and he was the hero. Well, it, it, it was just amazing. We dared to ask Ian later. He said, honey, what do you remember of what happened? And he said that a big ball he wanted had rolled into the pool, and he leaned over to get it, and he fell in. And then somebody had jumped in, and and then we said, well, and what else do you remember? And he said, I just remember Jesus brought me out. <laughs> that was his memory. <laughs> it's so interesting that years later, when we would tell the story at one of our journey conferences— 
Sometimes Ian and his family would be there, and Conley would often invite him to come up front and be there as he told the story of this miracle. And Ian, when he was like five, and then seven, and then nine, he'd always run up to Conley and throw his arms around him and and he'd say, you and Jesus saved me. <laughs> I mean, most grateful little child and just adorable. So it's one of those stories that is so miraculous. And you think, this is the best news ever. This is the impossible that God made possible. And you should just be elated to have experienced this and even be able to tell people about it. But that night when we'd gotten back home and settled into bed, I would have anticipated being elated as what had happened. But when I would close my eyes, I didn't see that three-year-old sitting up in the bed with a big grin on his face. I saw that dead three-year-old in my arms beside that pool. That, that's a lot, that was the image that kept coming to me. And as I think I've already told you, I was feeling incredibly responsible because I had not thoroughly checked out the fact that he couldn't swim. Our kids had all been able to swim at the time they were one. And, you know, his parents were there, and I wasn't blaming them for not having watched him. I just had assumed that they would be responsible for their own children, which was a mistake. But anyway, that was the thing that stuck with me was that image of this three-year-old boy that I'd known since he was born. He was dead. No doubt about it. He was absolutely limp. His body was getting stiff. He was, it was becoming discolored. And that was the thing that had settled in my heart rather than what we had seen afterwards after God had restored him. That was a Saturday afternoon. So the next day, fortunately, my associate was preaching. I didn't have to preach. And in a Episcopal communion service, part of the liturgy is always we do a, a joint confession. It was in the prayer book. And then the officiant would pronounce God's forgiveness based on Holy Scripture. And that was what my colleague was doing that day, fortunately. And we were kneeling on the platform, and I knew what we were doing as a congregation, but it wasn't that awareness of God's presence that often would be the case. And I was just saying, Lord, you know, I, I'm, I, I feel heavy today. I don't. Why can't I celebrate what you've done? And it was one of those impressions that— comes and you just know that it's God. And he said, it's because you haven't confessed your sin. And I realized that I had not confessed to him my failing to have taken care of that little boy who was not responsible for his welfare. So I just, apart from whatever the congregation was doing in the liturgy, kneeling up there on that platform, I just said, Jesus, forgive me. I failed Ian. And if it wasn't for you, he would be dead. And I can't tell you what happened. It was like a weight was lifted off my shoulder. And I was once again reminded graphically of the power of confession and forgiveness for us who obey God's command to forgive and to confess and to receive the forgiveness of God. It's like we receive a gift that somebody's given us, and unless we unpackage the gift, it doesn't do us any good. It says we receive it, and it becomes part of who we are, and it makes a difference in our lives emotionally and even physically. 
Conley was able to put this into words at the end of the confession. And when the people stood, he told the story. He invited Ian and his parents to come up front, and everyone in the whole congregation just stood and and rejoiced and and celebrated as a family of God the miracle that was there present in our midst. And there were so many tears, and it was just beautiful. But Conley was able to share with them this principle that there is nothing so bad that we can experience. There's no image that can get lodged in our hearts so incredibly horrible that God can't get rid of it for us when we submit it to Him, forgive our sins, receive His forgiveness, and allow Him to cleanse us. He'll tell us how to do it. We don't always do it the same way. Sometimes it doesn't happen in just one moment. It happens over time. But it's God's way of cleansing us from the thing we fear the most, death, the images of death, the fears of death, and even death itself. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We all have failed other people in one way or another in different ways. And we can carry that around for the rest of our lives if we don't deal with it in the way that God has provided through confession and forgiveness. If you're dealing with something today, I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will come upon you. He will fill your heart with the power of His presence, and He will guide you step by step as how to submit that to Him and allow Him to cleanse you as only He can do. May God bless you and keep you always. Until next time. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yellow Sofa, Modern Day Miracles. To find out more about the Bodish Baas ministry and to connect with them, visit www.signabodishbaas.com. The link for that is in the show notes. Special thanks to Daniel Matthews of Rockwell and John Rhodes of Rhodes Recording for producing this podcast. You can learn more about them by visiting their links in the show notes. Finally, if you're enjoying this podcast, Consider leaving a review and sharing it with a friend. It truly helps.